So after you read a text like this, you should just say the benediction, right? It's like, there you go. There's a story about that. What I would like for you to do, though, just for a moment, is use your imagination. Pretend like you're a child, a Jewish boy or girl at this particular juncture in history. There's been nine plagues that have taken place, and you've heard about them. You know, parents talk, and kids pick up the story, and then they tell it to one another. The gnats, the flies, the frogs, the Nile turning to blood, one story after another. Remember when you were a child and it was like that? When there was something big on the horizon told to you by your parents, it created a new kind of life for you. You almost entered into it in a way. You role-played, you acted out. There had to be little boys who pulled out a stick and pretended to be Moses. There had to be little girls who perhaps knew the story of Miriam and the water's edge when Moses was a baby. Undoubtedly, it seems like to me, as children always do, they were entering these events. There's something else I want you to imagine, and that is the Exodus itself and the preparation that went into the Passover and the event and, and all the excitement around it. It was at the highest level of excitement for the adults and for the children, and all the adults were doing exactly the same thing. They were all on the same page. Everything was about one thing. Remember that I, I didn't grow up up here in the north where you prepared for a blizzard, but when blizzards come, everybody does the same thing. You get ready. The store shelves clear. You hunker down. We had hurricanes in South Florida. That was fun. I love those because everybody was on the same page. We hunkered down. We looked at the coordinates. We listened to the radio. And we waited. And everybody was in it together. As a matter of fact, you took care of your neighbors, even if you didn't like them the day before, you know? When the hurricane was coming, you were in this thing together. Imagine yourself as a child. You've heard those stories. And now, there's a new chapter that's about to unfold. Before we address this chapter, let's remind ourselves of what this first chapter, before the Red Sea, is all about. Particularly chapter 11. In a word, chapter 11 is the catastrophic overwhelming, intense, violent, deadly judgment of God. If I had more words, I'd throw them in there. That's what it was. God said, this is the last plague. Up until now, nothing compares to this. In one night, as a matter of fact at midnight, as God predicted, 
he would wipe out the firstborn of all of Egypt. Every child, every animal, every firstborn was killed by the wrath of God. There's only one way out, God said. That's for the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb or a goat and to put the doorpost painted with blood. And then if you do, God said, I'll pass over that and your firstborn will not die. Imagine, if you will again, Pharaoh in his bed on that fateful night in all the royalty, the trappings of being a king. And he's awakened by the roar of the wails of every parent in Egypt. He awakens, he realizes it is the judgment of God. He calls Moses and Aaron and says, get out of here. Just leave me. And they do. You know, up until now, we've encountered a couple of stories about the judgment of God in this series on ancient stories and contemporary truth from the Old Testament. The one that stands out the largest so far is that story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God absolutely annihilates a town, a city, because of wickedness. In this case, it's slightly different. In this case, God's judgment, which comes for a variety of reasons, in this case, primarily, God's judgment comes on a group of people because they and their leaders Stand in his path. He's about to do something. He's about to take his firstborn, that nation, and bless the whole world through their lineage, which we later understand to be the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And there's one obstacle to that plan. It's an obstinate Pharaoh who puts his people in harm's way. And God judges him and his nation. You know what we've also seen in this story, in particular and in other places, God's judgment frequently involves God manipulating people and events in order to accomplish his will. This story tells us, among other things, that God is the giver of life and he can take it from anyone. That's serious stuff. It's just raw. It is what it is. I can make no excuses. The second part of the story comes in chapter 12. It's a story of redemption. The first was judgment, the second redemption. 
There was only one way. It was through the Passover. And this Passover was not only just redemption, it was symbolic. And was supposed to be symbolic for years to come. God said, I want you to remember this day when I redeemed you, when I snatched you from slavery in Egypt and from the jaws of death. And I took you and I preserved you. I redeemed you. I want you to remember this. And the way I want you to remember it is it's as though I want you to stamp it on your forehead. Here's the stamp on the forehead. I want you to remember this Passover over and over again. And every time you have a firstborn, that firstborn is to be completely surrendered to me. And that firstborn, when it's a child, it's to be redeemed. I want a lamb or a goat as its method of blood redemption. I want you to offer that lamb or goat to me the way we did on Passover. I want you to remember that I am God and you are my people and your firstborn is mine. Redeem that firstborn at the price of a lamb. You know, in this redemption story, Israel took it seriously, didn't they? We don't hear one single story about an Israelite saying, well, I don't think the blood's that necessary. I think what I'll do is just have soup tonight. The blood's kind of icky. Don't like the symbolism. Who wants blood on their doorpost anyhow? No, they weren't so foolish. They took it seriously because they took God seriously. There's something else about this story of deliverance. This story of deliverance, like every story of deliverance, it makes sense only in the context of judgment. The story is next to judgment. The story is about being redeemed from judgment. The story is about the wrath of God upon the wicked and about redemption from the wrath of God. Redemption can be cheapened by us, but in this story it doesn't allow it. It puts it in bold contrast to sin and the wrath of God. There's a third part of the story uh, that was read for you moments ago in chapter 14. That part of the story really is about lordship. The first, it was about judgment. The second was about redemption, and this is about lordship. God says, um, I'm going to take these people that I've delivered from Egypt, and I'm going to get them out of harm's way. But I'm not going to take them by the typical route. I'm not going to take them along this route that's easier and straighter, right up the Nile and the Red Sea and right into Canaan. I'm going to take them the long way around, out here into the wilderness. And the reason I'm going to do that, God says, is because if they went that way, the so-called easy way, it would get harder because there's fighting people there and they'd be easily discouraged and they would turn back. I don't want them to fail in this journey. So Moses, you take them around this way. You know, it's, it's just so ironic, this activity of redemption. It's both harder and easier. It's easier because God knows they will falter along the way if they go the easy route. It's harder 
Because when they leave the easy route, which may have made them falter along the way, they go to a desperate condition in the wilderness where no provisions are readily made for them and where God constantly supplies their need when their backs are to the wall over and over again. God's path of redemption is both easy and hard. When they arrive um, at this fateful destination, they've gotten there in a circuitous way. We can't tell exactly what the route was. Historians speculate about that. But we can be sure of this. They were down in the south and they were headed towards the north. And they were in a wilderness. And as they headed towards the north, escaping from Egypt, at some point the text says, God said to Moses, turn them back around. We don't know exactly what the back around meant. All we know is that these people who were headed to the promised land were turned back around as if once again to face the Egyptians. The turn back around put them to the back of the sea. And the Egyptians were upon them. They could see them a long ways off, and they cried out to Moses. Why? Moses, didn't we tell you we'd rather have been in Egypt anyway? Now we're going to die in the desert? Can't we just be slaves? It's a lot better to be a slave and live than to be a free man and die in the desert. And while they're crying out to God through Moses, Moses says to him, be quiet a minute. Hush. I, I have to wonder, how did he get all these people settled down without a microphone? You know? But he did. Be quiet a moment. Stand firm. Be quiet. And watch the mighty hand of God. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. I love the text because there's this pregnant pause between that statement and the next statement. And there's no information that's filled in the gap. You go from Moses saying, stand back and watch the mighty hand of God, to God saying to Moses, why are you crying out to me? What happened in those intervening moments? We can only speculate. God turns to Moses, maybe in his mind. Maybe he turns his back on the people and cries out to God. God, what am I supposed to do now? We've had all these plagues, but here we are, backs to the Red Sea. And God, instead of being doting and encouraging, he just says, stop whining. What are you crying out to me for? Pick up that staff. Remember that staff, Moses? The one that turned into a stake, snake and back to a staff? The one that you used on the Nile River? Remember that staff, Moses? Stretch it across the sea, and then you'll see my mighty act of God. And he did, and the waters were parted. The waters were parted, it says, by an east wind brought on by God. Love to have seen that wind. <laughs> Just parted those waters the intersection of the natural and the supernatural. Something that we really create a false dichotomy on. Us modern people, it's natural. 
It's supernatural to God. It's all his playground. God uses this east wind to part the sea, and they, they walk across, and the Egyptians come behind, and literally the wheels come off. Wheels come off the chariots. They're bogged down. They're confused. And then finally the sea collapses on them, and they're destroyed. And with this picture, God is basically saying one thing. I am Lord. I'm Lord over the wind and the seas. I'm Lord over the greatest, mightiest nation in the world. I have eternal plans and they will not be thwarted because I am God. But you know, there's something else in this story, this latter part of the story. It's not just a declaration of who God is. It's an invitation to the people to follow God. I am God, land and sea God, mighty nations God, God of everything. And I'm going to part right through that water a path for you to follow. Follow me. I'm your Lord. Follow me. And they follow. There's some uh, wonderful material here, isn't there? I'm sure your mind has gone a thousand different directions. This week while I was studying it, um, I was reading one uh, commentator who spent almost ten pages, I guess, talking about, that's probably an exaggeration, but I didn't give his name so you can't check it out, um, talking about how we use this Exodus story and belittle it for our own purposes. Reduce it down to size and make it all about our little difficulties in our life and how God's always there to redeem us and to rescue us and on and on and on. And his point was, was this, and, and it was a good one. A lot of times these grand, remarkable stories of Scripture, we just take for ourselves, and we're so, well, we're so self-centered, we just turn them into us. And really, they're all about God. And he's right. It is all about God. It is God saying, I'm Lord over heaven and earth. It is about that. But you know what? If I were to listen to the description that he gave at the end of that commentary, he basically told me to ignore the history of God's people and how they have applied this Exodus story to their lives because for hundreds and thousands of years, people have looked at this story and they've said, where is God in that story? Where is God in my life? And they've seen an Exodus there and they've seen an Exodus here and it's okay to do that. I know we can belittle the great truths of God. But God does allow us to be in circumstances where our backs are to the wall and we have no hope except through Him. And for that reason, I want to apply it a little bit. First point of application is this. It's back to the beginning. It is absolutely foolish and dangerous, my friends, to question 
divine judgment. We better not do it. It's the coy thing to do nowadays. To worry with the judgment of God and say it doesn't look just. To create a scenario that says all is forgiven and judgment no longer exists. But if we take the scripture seriously, we cannot do that and we dare not do it. Look, let me admit to you, I recoil at some of these stories too. I get that. There were a whole lot of babies in Egypt that did nothing wrong, and they died by the plague. There were a whole lot of people in the Old Testament when God gave directives to people that died, and they had nothing to do with the problem, at least not from our point of view. And I cringe because I want to say, God, really? Did you have to do it that way? I, I want to tell you something that's true that we easily forget. Both civilizations that were a part of this story held to this belief. God has the power, or the gods, have the power and the right to punish humanity. The Egyptians believed it, and so did the Israelites. It's we who stumble over it. And in attempting to understand the judgment of God, I wrestle with it. I pray about it. I ask why. But attempting to understand the judgment of God is different than protesting and ignoring it. To ignore it means that I ignore God. To ignore it means that I communicate to people it doesn't exist, and it doesn't matter. And by that declaration, I put them in harm's way. The church of Jesus Christ cannot ignore the judgment of God. I can cry out, why? I can beg for an answer. But my friends, at the risk of being dramatic, at the end of the day, there is only one appropriate posture, and it is this. In the face of an almighty and holy God, you are God, and you will do what you choose. As difficult as it is, I must submit to the judgment of God. I'm not given the responsibility to implement it, 
only responsibility to submit to it. So first point of application, it's absolutely foolish and dangerous to question or deny divine judgment because the scripture says there will be a final one in which wickedness will be judged. Second, it's important to remember that we need redemption. The people who were in Egypt didn't think to themselves, we've got almost everything we need to defeat the Egyptians if God would just give us a little bit more. They didn't think to themselves, we're on the verge of doing this ourselves. They realized that they were absolutely helpless and hopeless apart from the mighty hand of God to redeem. Entirely, redemption was God's job. They realized themselves to be absolutely inadequate slaves in Egypt, completely captured by their circumstances. And it was only the redemption of God's almighty hand that would bring them out. And in much the same way, we could fool ourselves into thinking, but we must not, that somehow we're pretty good, but just not quite good enough, that we need just a little bit of help in order to get to God. No, we don't need a little bit of help. We need ourselves to be destroyed in the presence of God so that he can restore us and give us resurrection life. We need to completely surrender everything that we are. Because we're turned inward beings. We are in desperate need of redemption. We have no hope without God. That's the message of this text. And it's a message that runs like a scarlet thread throughout Scripture. It's the message of the cross. And we can't forget it. You know what happens after the redemption takes place? Miriam writes a song. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. She can't help it. She writes a song and they start singing. That's the only appropriate response to redemption. I've got no hope. You're my only hope. Listen to our songs. How delightful they are when they remind us there were people who were slaves to sin and freed by God and that we are utterly hopeless without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of our songs so often, so beautiful, so appropriate. These stories tell us it's foolish to question the judgment of God. It's important to remember the redemption of God. And finally, these stories, well, they tell us it's an incredible gift of grace to follow the one who is the beginning and the end. Not the one just who knows the beginning and the end. The one who is the beginning and the end. The author of all things. It's an incredible gift of grace to be able to walk across the Red Sea figuratively. To follow the God who sees all. That's a gift that's given to us by faith. And it's a gift we must seize with all our life. You know, when the Israelites had their backs to the sea, did you notice how myopic their vision was? You know what that means. It means like this, right? And it doesn't even have the ability of a telescopic lens on it. It's just like that. It's biology without astronomy. Yeah? It's just this. Their vision was absolutely myopic. They had their backs to the sea, and they saw only two options in front of them. One was, we can go back to Egypt and serve as slaves. We'd prefer that, Mo. 
Can we go back? Or the other option, stay here and die. And it's as though God smiles down upon them and says, welcome to my three-dimensional, four-dimensional, ten-dimensional world. You have no idea what the possibilities are. It's not either slavery or death. It's absolute redemption. It's freedom. It's a path across the sea. It's a way through the wilderness. It's life. You can't see it, but if you follow me, I'll show you the way. That's what this story tells us. It starts as a story of judgment. It introduces us to redemption. And then it gives us a gift. A gift of following the one who knows the beginning from the end and who indeed is the beginning and the end. Oh, back to the beginning. Remember the children? I remember being a child. And I think if I'd have been a child back then, I would have shared the stories of the nine plagues and I would have turned to my friend and said, I wonder what God's going to do next. That's faith. Is that the way you're thinking? Wherever you are right now? Whatever the circumstances that are so myopic for you? If it's not, I invite you to think that way. What's God about to do next? God's always up to something. You won't really be able to see it. But with the eyes of faith, you can believe it and see it that way. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've uh, not only made a way through the wilderness, specifically historically for those people who followed you so many thousands of years ago, but you've made a way through the wilderness for your saints over and over again. Some of the stories loom very large and others are private, even quiet, even untold. But you're the God of the universe, the one who is the beginning and the end, the one who has promised redemption through Jesus Christ, the one who invites us to follow. So we pray, Lord, this week that you will give us the eyes of faith. We know that does not mean we will see everything, but it, know, it does mean that we will be able to see by faith what we need to see from you. Open our eyes, Lord, take the scales off of them and recreate in us that deep faith. That deep faith that believes in more than one or two or three dimensions but believes in the ultimate undimensional world of reality that you inhabit. The God who has everything under his control. The God in whose hands we safely and confidently rest the God who makes a way in the wilderness. We thank you for this. In Christ our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand and respond?